and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Barb Wire. Hello, and welcome to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and cohort, Julio. My, I can't. Would you be my Charlie or my Curly? Uh, uh probably your Charlie. Well, you have your eyesight, so we can go with Curly. <laughs> I'm not that I can. I'm a school. As, as iconic as Udo Kier. Fair enough. Or my Django Fett. What's that dude's name? Uh, oh, that's him, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. To Tamuria Morrison. Yep, that's uh, Django himself. Pre-decapitation. Who decapitates him? Is it Mace Windu? I think so. There's a lot of chaos and visual noise going on in that sequence uh, a movie I am far more likely to come back to multiple times before I ever go back to Attack of the Clones and that is barbed wire what we're discussing here today the patron takeover continues and today we go back to the year of 1996 and to a different more innocent time as Pamela Anderson Lee <laughs> makes her leading lady debut in barbed wire based on the uh, comic book of the same name from Dark Horse Comics. Based we'll on the novel Barbed Wire? <laughs> based on a novel push by Sapphire. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Should be a fun one. We're going to get to it here in a moment. We'll get to who brought it to us uh, here momentarily. But let's go ahead and say hello to any and all first-time listeners and uh, welcome back to returning. Uh, we'll go ahead and explain what it is we do here on The Contrarians so we can get right to it. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. We'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times accompanied with that uh, beautiful IP and that Joan Calamazzo seal of approval, fresh. And what we'll do with those movies is cut them down to size and discuss some of the aspects of the movie that uh, – Maybe don't add up to that really high, nice score, be it bad direction, questionable storytelling, poor acting, score, soundtrack, cinematography, whatever we have to, where wherever we have to go to make our case, we'll find it. Uh, conversely, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, and as you could guess, we'll make a case for the positive merit of that film, be it misunderstood performances, uh, visionary direction, bold storytelling, the presence of Udo Kier. The, the presence of Udo Kier and the overabundance of Pamela Anderson Lee's heaving bosoms. Or who, I mean, we, we got a lot to work with here. There's a an arms dealer named Big Fatso. <laughs> I mean, we'll, 
we'll, we'll find a way to work with this. And as you can guess, being that barbed wire is 28% of Rotten Tomatoes, we will be speaking positively of it today in the first half, that is, as what I just described comprises our first half of each episode, part one, uh, what we call Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie du jour, the movie that we're discussing, and in today's case, that is 1996's Barbed Wire, they just need to hang around for the second half for part two. That is correct. Part two, aptly titled Real Talk, that's where we tell you how we really feel. We forget about the Rotten Tomato score. We don't care if it's rotten or fresh. All we care about is what's inside our hearts. How did we experience barbed wire? Uh, first watch for me. Uh, I think it's also first watch for you, right, Alex? You just you were just very familiar with the poster. Uh, the poster, and I do remember seeing the opening credits in like a way that I wasn't supposed to. I was probably too young, <laughs> and it was on HBO or Showtime or some shit like that. And so for years, I thought the movie was just like breasts, 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 water, breasts. <laughs> uh, what a pleasant surprise to find out that there's a story tying it all together. Oh, and also just a whole hail of gunfire and action. So yeah, I, I was I was pleased with what I learned here today. Well, you'll find out if Alex is being truthful in real talk, and you'll also find out how uh, does the person that charged us with watching this movie feels because real talk is when we let our patrons uh share their thoughts on the movie that they they assigned to us gerald morris uh longtime listener friend fellow podcaster uh, he threw barbed wire at us and i don't know i mean you know gerald does have a reputation in, mm. in the podcast community for uh being very enthusiastic about half-naked women. But then again, don't we all? <laughs> so I wonder if his his reason for sending uh, barbed wire our way is just because, yeah, he, he truly likes it as, as, a, as a work of art. Or maybe he actually thinks it's really bad and, and he just wants to have fun with it. We'll see. We'll find out in, in part two when we get to real talk. But first, this movie's rotten, so we're going to talk about it as if it was a masterpiece. That we are. A film that racked in one, two, three, four, five, six Golden Raspberry nominations in the year of 1997. Come on. Much to discuss here. So 28% of Rotten Tomatoes. We already covered why we're doing this movie. And I think it's important just up in front to thank our wonderful patrons and Gerald for this one. Like like you kind of alluded to, always something interesting with Gerald. So um, I ended up biting the, the barb. Or the bullet, as it were. <laughs> and I bought this on Blu-ray for our recording here today because it is not readily available on any legal streaming services. And the rental, anywhere you go, was going to run about four bucks. And the Blu-ray on Amazon was eight bucks. And so I said, fuck it. I will add this to the collection. And the transfer was quite wonderful. So uh, I do recommend, just based on that alone, checking it out. Uh, Julio, which uh, which means or uh, website rather did you go to for a, for a rental? I went to Amazon Prime, and I really I didn't do the math properly because yeah, the, when you put it like that, then yes, <laughs> it was definitely <laughs> uh, financially sound to just go ahead and buy the Blu-ray. But uh, in a way, it kind of worked out because I ended up watching this movie the first half of it uh, during my lunch break at work. Which I wouldn't have been able to do if I bought the Blu-ray. Yeah, and then like I texted you, that was not a good idea because I guess I was I didn't realize it was radar, and I I was just sitting at my desk and there's Pamela Anderson like 
shaking her boobs all over. Oh, that's why you texted me. This is rated R. I was like, what is he talking about? That's well, yeah. I was like, those are nipples. I can see nipples like everywhere. It wasn't like, oh, maybe that was nipple. No, it's like there's nipples all over the opening and and then all throughout the movie. And you know, I'm like two desks away is the, the my coworker, and I definitely don't want her like come over to like ask me something and I have to like close the laptop or something or, or act like like I'm actually watching porn or something. So yeah, it was a little awkward. I survived. I made it through. So my complaint about the Blu-ray, though, is the box art for it is not the original poster for the movie. With it, it is a photo of Pamela Anderson with her hair all done up, and she's wearing you know makeup, and uh, she has a gun, but it's a different pose and not quite as iconic and memorable as her with uh, you know looking to the side and her mouth open and the gun resting on her face, like the <laughs> the box art that I stared at oh so many times in video stores across the. Uh, the Ohio <laughs> landscape, but it has the a cover of her, and on the back it has her like riding a, riding a motorcycle. And it ha- the critic quote is from Roger Ebert, and the spine of it has that famous picture of her from the original poster. So it says Barbara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the part that I will see the most in my life is the spine, and it has the image that I most associate with this movie. So they they were playing for keeps to begin with. Uh, I I don't know why I thought this was funny. I know she's been split from Tommy Lee for years and years, but she on the Blu-ray, it's just Pamela Anderson. But then when you fire up the the actual movie, it's Pamela Anderson Lee is barbed wire hyphenated, and you know that's probably the most noteworthy thing that ever happened with them. It's not like they were part of any <laughs> massive scandal or anything like that. <laughs> Depending on who you talk to, also, they would concur that his name being on this, you know, he had an original song for this, uh, was nowhere near as detrimental to his uh, star power than the Motley Crue album that came out about a year later, Generation Swine, which is just an absolute fucking mess. He should have stuck making uh, music for the closing credits of uh, bad action movies. We will get to Tommy a little bit more in the part two, a little bit to discuss there. Uh, but for now, our feature player is Pamela Anderson Lee. She had been in a few movies before this, bit roles, cheerleader, you know, that type of thing. And uh, I know there was a TV movie and there was one that she like had a billing on, but I think it was, you know, Anna Nicole Smith, Skyscraper, that type of movie. Uh, But this was like the the vehicle, the would-be vehicle for Pamela Anderson to become a movie star. She, of course, had already been on Home Improvement. And uh, Baywatch, which was her springboard. I remember first seeing her Home Improvement. Do you have you ever watched Home Improvement, Julio? Yes, I had forgotten that she was in it until just now. She's uh, uh, Tim's assistant, right? That she works with him and Al. I mean, is my sensitivity being obliterated by my overwhelming masculinity? I don't think so, Al. I want to say Heidi was the one that was for the majority of the show. Uh, the brunette, but yeah, the first two seasons, Lisa was her name and that was Pamela Anderson on the show. I remember when I was, this is years ago. It's probably when I was home from college, just watching TV and I remember had a home improvement on with my mom in the room, like folding laundry over. I was like, Hey, that's Pamela Anderson. You know, she's like, no, it's not. And cause <laughs> you know, she just looks so young and ready to conquer the world and that, uh, but, but you can tell because of the way that she held the tools next to her face suggestively. Uh, yeah. oh, 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 oh. <laughs> but like I said, Baywatch came along, launched her to a certain level of stardom, and she was 
a blonde bombshell. And this was the attempt. We're going to make her a movie star. Or, you know, just see what happens. As it was Gramercy Pictures, Gramercy, which was a division of Universal. So essentially Universal fronted $9 million and said, let's see what happens. And things definitely happened. Uh, (laughs) Julio, what were the critics saying about this? What were they saying then, now, forever? What what were you able to uh, put together for us? 28% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, not as many reviews. I think there's about 40 altogether. Uh, you would think that a movie like this, which it seems like people are very loud about whether they like it or not, that they would have more representation in the tomato meter. But I was surprised that there wasn't a whole lot. Like in most of those reviews, they didn't even have quotes. Um, but still, I was able to pull three rotten quotes. I'm going to start with Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Crazed, who says, A lemon of a comic book movie with an uninteresting heroine, bad acting, and a bland, humorless premise. <laughs> How can you... Okay, even if I were to agree with the first two points, which I don't, but bland, humorless premise? <laughs> like, the whole premise is is a riff on Casablanca. Yes. <laughs> How is... <laughs> How is that humorless? You have a man at Clint Howard begging for help. It's it's got everything. Humorless. Uh, All right. Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader says, its main source is a comic book, but it might as well be a computer. What? Is he suggesting that all the way back in 96, 97? AI AI was already uh, starting to take over. This is how they started. They start with barbed wire, and then they they eventually graduate to, I don't know, Jurassic World Dominion. (laughs) Yes. Which is best. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to close with Michael Duquina from TheMovieReport.com, who says, The most inane and inept Hootfest, or for that matter, Hooterfest, to hit the big screen screen since Showgirls. Alex, I take offense at this quote. I take offense on several levels. If you've been with us for a little while, you know that we did uh, an episode on Showgirls. So my opinions on that movie are on the record. And uh, they're not positive. (laughs) And even, I'll tell you this much without getting into the meat of real talk, but even if I were to say that Barbed Wire is not a good movie, even if I were to say that I didn't really enjoy it, I would never say (laughs) that it's on the level of showgirls which is the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel Mm -hmm. so uh michael dequina i uh, congratulations because obviously you wanted to provoke a reaction with this quote and you did you made me mad i do like hooters fest though don't 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 (laughs) Don't encourage no (laughs) and uh, look let's that's uh a big chested elephant in the room that we just need to go ahead and talk about. Like (laughs) if we reference Pamela Anderson's breasts in a joking manner, it's certainly not to um, objectify her, but you cannot talk about this movie or her image in general. She had giant breasts and, you know, on her very small frame, they definitely stick out in this movie goes out of its way repeatedly to show you that. So if well, we I just, think she's, she's in on the joke or, or you know, oh, in, absolutely. On the, on the fun. Like she's, that's part of the, like this movie, like barbed wire is all about her being very sexual. And that's part of the character. And I, I think that she's having a lot of fun with it, like her and, and the crew. And it's the opposite of, you know, 
sexualizing somebody that's not in on the joke or that is like reluctantly doing something for like money. Like obviously, and that was personally, also, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there did a couple years after this. Unfortunately, there was an incident where she was objectified by a lot of people when her privacy was kind of invaded, uh, and she was seen in a way that she never meant to be. Um, but that that's also part of the Baywatch. That was like the joke of Baywatch, all the slow motion shots of the guys and the girls, you know, running down the beach and Pamela Anderson, of course, being one of them. So, and we call guys big dicks whenever they're on screen. <laughs> oh yeah. I think we've talked about Fossbender's cock. Like if you put like a, a sizzle reel together of it, it'd probably be six hours long at this point for <laughs> all the time. And yet not as long as his dick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, the reason I mentioned that is because the opening credits, you can't avoid it. Just tits and a cover of uh, word up is playing while a strobe light goes off. And like I said, seeing that young when I wasn't supposed to, I just assume that's what the whole movie was. Uh, Julio, I, I didn't even check. Are you done with your quotes? Yeah. Yeah. That was how, okay. how could I top Hooter Fest and a comparison to showgirls that had to be the end of it. So let's get to barbed wire. Uh, in a kind of jarring, almost prediction of what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> the capital was stormed by, in, by the rebels. In 2017, during the second American Civil War, I rewound. Was that, did that say like 2037? It said 2017. <laughs> it's like, oh God, that, you know, Trump had just gotten sworn into <laughs> office. And if he had it his way, this is pretty much what would have happened. Uh, <laughs> We're going to use our friends at Wikipedia as we do from time to time. And It's 2017. During the Second American Civil War, Barbed Wire owns the Hammerhead, a nightclub in Steel Harbor, the last free city in the United States, which has been ravaged by the war. She earns cash as a mercenary and a bounty hunter. So my note just says President Trump or predicted Trump. <laughs> you know, it is. We, we've done plenty of movies like this where it's the future. And at the time, this would have been, you know, 21 years away. Uh, it is funny to think of. That's the idea. Kind of odd timing, too, because some of the shots of, like, the land, what the country looks like now in this movie, look a lot like those pictures that were coming out today of, like, New York and New Jersey with all the wildfires raining down from Canada. Just odd timing, as we seem to have from time to time. But... Uh, Starts with Pamela Anderson, barbed wire, dancing in a club. We learn right away, don't call her babe, as someone who's watching her dance calls her babe, and she fucking ninja stars her high heel at his head, and it goes into his fucking forehead. It's awesome. She kills him, right? <laughs> Is that? I would assume or, so. That stiletto heel went deep into his forehead. That's. Uh, I mean, there's an underreaction from everybody else in this strip club. <laughs> well, it's, you know, well, you know, like they're in the midst of a war, and, you know, it would seem that, America is where uh, Trump wanted it to be at that point. but <laughs> yes. So basically, nothing really shocks them. Going to a strip club at their own peril. I like that basically the movie is uh, very quickly puts you in your place, right? If you were with those guys and you were just kind of like whistling and, and catcalling Pamela Anderson and she was dancing on your screen, then you see one of them get basically murdered with a stiletto heel. And you're like, oh, oh okay, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, I will behave. The opening scene here, which is kind of just detached from the rest of the movie, it's just kind of its own standalone. It's a cold open almost. The bad guy here, 
who runs the club and also had this girl hostage that Barb was there to save is um, Charlie's landlord from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And then uh, he was also in Contrarian's favorite Here Comes the Boom. He was the guy in the immigration class with uh, Boss (laughs) Rutan. Sadly, he's not as likable of a guy here as he gets killed pretty quick, but the aperture expands here. We learn more about the world. We learn about the hammerhead. We learn that this is what barbed wire does, and we learn what's going on. The congressionals, uh, Julio, I don't think they're really trying to mask it. The way that the government dresses in this movie is definitely a Nazi influence, and we don't know why, but we know that they have targeted fugitive uh, Cora D, is what they call her, who is... um, a former government scientist, and she has DNA information or DNA in general that they're trying to get and shut down. So they're on the hunt for this Cora D. It's also important to call out that the story is guided by Miss Lee herself. Pamela Anderson does provide narration for this. I was not expecting that, and I pumped my fist when that came to light. It's not overbearing either. It's just here and there, every now and then, to reassure you. It was yeah. kind of jarring hearing Pamela Anderson say she's a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll confess this, Alex. I was very slow on the uptake when it came to the Casablanca uh, comparisons. Like by the time you get to the end, it's like really <laughs> obvious. I was about to say, uh, I think you would you wouldn't notice being um, pepper sprayed in the face as quick as you notice the Casablanca <laughs> illusions in this movie. The problem is that. Uh, Pamela Anderson, she makes a Batman joke earlier in the movie, like really early, where she's rescuing that girl. Because she's like, David Hogan, the director of this, was the second unit director on Batman Forever. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, he definitely colored how I watched this movie <laughs> with that little <laughs> bit. Because I was like, is she comparing herself to Batman? Because I was, you know, my thought was like, that's tall order. You're you're really if, at a disadvantage when you're saying, yeah, I have the toys. What else is it going to be? But then as the movie goes on, I'm like, all right, I get it. You know, the hammerhead is like the 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 bat cave, the the, the barb cave, as you will. Udo Kier is Alfred, obviously. He, oh, yeah. He looks like a butler. Charlie, her blind brother, might he as well is. be Robin. There's that, <laughs> there's that shot where Udo Kier is just sweeping up the broken glass and he's like, <laughs> Master Wayne. <laughs> Well, there's a point where he has a wig on and he looks like Michael Caine. So <laughs> the comparisons are there. And so I was just constantly going like the mythology fucking uh, Xander Berkeley is it's a version of uh, Commissioner Gordon. So yeah. it, it's all there. And when you're focused, when you're watching it with the with the bad lenses, then Casablanca kind of <laughs> goes over your head. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I like it. Um, when we first go to Hammerhead, Julio, uh, it has to be a cameo because he does not appear at any other point in the movie. Did you catch who the bouncer was just for that one shot? I had to double check IMDb to to like make sure, but it is Zeus, Zeus Debo. Yeah, it, and this would have been, I want to say, the same. Friday was ninety five. Yeah, Friday was ninety five. So there, in theory, he could have been filming these movies at the same time and done the Oscar Isaac going from one soundstage to the other. <laughs> uh, so he was. Do you think he was doing uh, Hogan a favor? <laughs> he certainly did Hulk Hogan a favor when he did the job for him <laughs> in 1990. But 
1989, excuse me. 90 was the intended goal. But uh, yeah, maybe. That'd be awesome if like, you know, or if like uh, Tiny Lister played himself on this one. It was like, hey, we'll give you 10 grand. Nah, man, I just want 10% of the box office. (laughs) 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 The reverse James Cameron. It didn't work out this time. But that was cool. I wrote in all caps, Debo. Udo Kier, as we mentioned. We're kind of running a parallel story with this Cora D character who is accompanied by Axel Hood, the aforementioned Django Fett. Cora D played by Victoria Rowell, who was the FBI agent in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, oh. Yeah, that's she she did a lot of other things. I think she was on a soap opera, I believe, that she kind of had some notoriety for. But I just always think of her. She's the one in Dumb and Dumber where uh, Jeff Daniels asks, what if he would have shot me in the face? And she goes, that was a risk we were willing to take. <laughs> <laughs> so we see that they're on the run, and we know this Cora D character has some shit that we need to figure out what's going on. They get into a, a scuffle with, you know, just the, the Nazis sweeping the streets, and I just wanted to bring up this particular one because the Iron Sheik died today, a famed professional wrestler, and Django Fett kills one of these guys with a shoot camel clutch. The camel clutch was... <laughs> Iron Sheik's finisher, but this dude bends the guy's head back so far that it snaps his neck and kills him. And I was just like, holy shit. Uh, Again, odd timing, but a fitting tribute. (laughs) So at this point, we haven't really met. Well, maybe we have the the leader of the of the the Proud Boys, you know, (laughs) the main guy here, uh, who is kind of like a a mix of uh, Michael Fassbender and uh, Christopher Waltz. When they first said his name, I thought they said Pfizer, and I said, no fucking way. And I had to <laughs> rewind it. It's a Pryzer, P-R-Y-Z-E-R. <laughs> Especially when you learn like the, the conspiracy that's to come. I was like, there's no way. But, so he is torturing people to get this information you know the first time we see him he's got the the kitchen gloves on you know with his jacket off torturing this woman with some weird fucking machine and ends up frying this poor young woman to death uh and he learns that this cora d has had plastic surgery so they don't know what she looks like anymore and that she's gonna flee the country but everywhere in this dystopian future you know there's retina scanners so he's confident that not only will she not be able to uh, make it across uh, country lines into it. Not only is he confident that she's not going to be able to leave the country, but he's going to track her down and find her. Is this happening in the same, uh, the same reality, the same timeline as minority report? Oh, maybe that woman was like a precog, <laughs> but also well, because they, in minority report, like they scan your eyeballs. That's like how you get everything done in that, in, in that world. Remember, like they scan for advertisements, and uh, that's, that's right. how you get through the doors and everything. That's why Tom Cruise has to keep his eyeballs after he gets them removed. Um, to hell of a like a thought, Tom Cruise sitting in a theater with three other people in like <laughs> you know Ann Arbor, Michigan. Him and Spielberg, <laughs> so, yeah, a guy's night out. <laughs> yeah, the popcorn's got the milk duds on top. You know they. <laughs> But they, they got the one popcorn they're sharing, but they also both have their own sodas. And afterwards, like, I think we can do something with that. Cruz, like, pitch it to Spielberg. How many people do you think watch barbed wire? <laughs> Don't call me babe. <laughs> 
we get more of a look at what barbed wire does with her bounty hunting. She finds a, a, a guy who skipped on his bond, his, his bail bond, and she captures him, turns him over she kinda, to... She kind of takes the long way around that, though, right? Because you think... She, she leaves the club. She leaves uh, Udo Kier in charge. And she says... Because uh, she's short on payroll. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to go get some money. And then for the next five to ten minutes of the movie... Uh, they kind of try to make you think that she is just going to like that. She's a sex worker, right? She's, she's mm-hmm. like standing on the street and she kind of lures a guy in and they have a, a conversation about how much and what will we do? And, and then he takes her to his place. And then, and then it turns out that the guy was the neighbor of the guy that she was hunting as a bounty hunter, mm-hmm. which is great. But what really struck me was that that it was, I mean, this is mid nineties and it was, I think a lot riskier to paint your protagonist as a sex worker versus today. Like today, I think that we're a little more, uh, you know, you don't, if you see uh, uh, somebody who has sex for money, you don't automatically think like the worst of them, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. kind of something that that's like society is is changing that way. But back in the nineties, like this, uh, you know, the writers, the directors, like, Pamela Anderson herself, like they were risking completely losing the the audience at that moment because it's the audience is not in on it. You know, for for a solid couple of sequences, you think that she's actually just going to sleep with this guy for money, and uh, the guy even brings out the gimp suit and the paddles. They're gonna get freaky, and it's like by now you've seen her dancing in slow motion, so you know that you know things could get sexy. In, in very different ways. So were you surprised? Because yeah, I hadn't seen this before. Were you surprised when uh, it turned out that uh, that she had ulterior motives? Did you think he she was just going to rob him? No, just because of the opening of the movie. I, I assumed this was part of some mission she was on. Didn't she say that she was going out to collect to Udo Kier? Said she was going out for a job. So I just assumed it was all part of it. But... But you know, you, you could uh, make it. You know, maybe you were out getting your soda during that time, so you missed that part, and you came back, and you're like, "What the fuck?" A, a job could also mean I'm gonna go sleep with this guy for money. I mean, that is a job. Oh, oh, okay, fair enough. I, I just at this point already knew she was. Well, women are smarter in general, but I knew that she had. Uh, she was sharp as a tack, and definitely had some stakes in the situation, uh, which turned to be true. Because she drops this dude off at the feet of Clint Howard, the wonderful Clint Howard, who you want to talk about going for it in a role that man he he would have to dial it back a few notches to be out of control in this movie. There's there's two settings for Clint Howard. There's Clint Howard working for his brother when he's in the Ron Howard movies, where he's kind of like and then sweet then, and, and then there's guy. the real Clint Howard. Yes. And then when, when they, he takes the mask off and he's like, this is me, this lazy Clint Howard. And uh, that's what we get here. It's delightful. I was glad that he was not just a one and done, that he comes back for another scene later. Uh, because it was, this is what I like. You know, when you, when you get these actors that are not uh, superstars, they're not leading men, they're just like interesting background actors or, you know, supporting actors. That's They get to do the fun stuff. They go for it almost every time. That's what Clint Howard does. He takes every role like it's the last acting he's going to do in his life. Udo Kier and Clint Howard both also in a previous Contrarians entry, the 2007 Rob Zombie's Halloween. Where uh, their chemistry was so powerful they had to be cut out of the movie. (laughs) 
Oh, we also learned during this another guy meets an ill fate after calling Barb babe. Don't call her babe. Learned about the dirty police chief here, uh, Xander Berkeley. You sound familiar with this gentleman, Julio. I feel like we've done a movie with him before because I feel like I've I've sung his praises before, but maybe not. Uh, all I can think of is that he's in uh, Year One, which is a movie that you you, you trashed very casually in uh, recent After Hours. Oh, duh! He's in uh, Judgment Day. Who was he in Judgment Day? Todd Voigt, wasn't he the stepdad? Is he the dad? Yeah, the stepdad. Okay, yeah. maybe that's that's okay. And we went through those pretty quickly, so maybe that's why. Mm-hmm. But Xander Berkeley. I mean, I always geek out whenever I see him in anything, but mainly I know him as uh, he's like the best character in the second season of Twenty Four. Mm. He has you know an arc, and then at the end of the season, spoiler alert. <laughs> his character dies he, he's kind of like a, a sleazeball and then he sacrifices himself he, he has like a, a heroic ending uh, at the end of season two and he's great and uh so anytime i see him I'm like oh he's later he is he's working again and uh i don't think i've ever seen him have a role of like significance to where you go that's awesome you know he's uh <laughs> he gets the spotlight the way that he did in that season of 24 uh but this comes close like I said, he's uh, Commissioner Gordon. He's the, the, a corrupt version of Commissioner Gordon. If he, if Commissioner Gordon had sexual chemistry with Batman, yes, yeah, he clearly has a thing for Barb as as everyone does. But they they clearly have a working relationship. So he's there to kind of smarten her up on the situation as to what's going on, and you know, leading. He's trying to, I think solve this situation and come out the hero on the other end without having to involve the congressionals. They all come in for, you know, their steak dinner and cigars there because they're on the hunt for this fugitive. And this guy definitely has an edge about him, though, where you're like, all right, yeah, he... It's kind, of, it's a dangerous movie. So, you know, you're, you're okay with the idea of, hey, he might be a dirty cop, and, you know, this might come into play later on. It's not something that makes you recoil and disgust because this movie's got an edge to it well i think that the movie throughout the movie you can see that he is he's corrupt but he is not necessarily a bad person uh in a way that the 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 leader of the proud boys is you know like he seems to have a code of sorts and he may be kind of gross but also he seems to care for uh for barbed wire and and the people of the bar of the hammerhead yeah Uh, which, by the way, okay, so so the Casablanca thing, you know, like this is a big one because she's throughout the movie, Barbara is constantly saying that she doesn't take sides, and so her bar is this place where people of all affiliations—Democrats, Republicans, Independents—they can all hang out there. It's and, an Applebee's. And, it's an Applebee's. Yes, you hit the pause button, you forget about you know all the the fake news and the rigged elections, and you just kind of have a drink, and. Uh, she she says it, and then uh, uh, I think Xander Berkeley mentions it too at some point. And then when the when the what's his name, not Pfizer, Prizer, Prizer, <laughs> when Prizer shows up, he also mentions that she's not uh, she doesn't discriminate, and her you know when it comes to her clientele. So it's a big point <laughs> that in mm-hmm. and I like it because. Like I said, I wasn't watching this as a sort of like a dark mirror version of Casablanca, but there's a lot that you can do with that concept of. Uh, the hero, the protagonist, that it's meant to be neutral, and at some point the situation pushes them to the point where they have to 
to pick a side, even though that's not what they wanted. That's that's a sort of Casablanca, and <laughs> they managed to do something completely different uh, in barbed wire, even though it's basically the same spine, right? She she's running her club, doing her own thing. There's a civil war. She's not taking sides, and then an old lover comes back, and she has to eventually choose a side. It's uh, fascinating. There's the the freedom fighters, uh, which represent how. Django Fett and Pamela Anderson met originally at the outbreak of the war. And then there's like the renegade troop that is um, the resistance that are way more, I don't know about dangerous, but grassroots, aggressive, you know, maybe even a little bit of guerrilla warfare in there. We haven't mentioned Charlie yet because he kind of just, he literally just is a background character uh, intentionally. Charlie Kopetsky, the brother of Barb, Barb Wire. This is Jack Noseworthy, who is blind. Uh, we learned that he went blind in battle at the outbreak of the war. And, you know, he's kind of there to sit, drink, have some quippy one-liners, and absorb information that uh, we may not catch up on. Putting all this together is because he has an in with the resistance. Um Django Fett coming in representing the Freedom Fighters along with Cora D and Barb is kind of an island onto herself is to reiterate what Julio was just saying. She has her fingers in all these pies, but you know, she doesn't pledge her allegiance to anyone in particular. Now, Django Fett shows up. Charlie immediately warns him, you know, you need to get out of here. Axel's his name. We learn that Axel Django Fett and Barb are former lovers. Love can bloom on the battlefield, as Otacon once asked. And we do get a flashback of fucking Pamela Anderson in fatigues. I think it's Seattle they said they were in. And they, you know, shit's going down. And she's waiting there for the chopper to take off. And she's waiting for Axel to show up. And he just leaves her. You know, well, he, he just doesn't her. show up. They, you know, some guy, he sent some guy with a message. <laughs> He's not coming oh, back. Oh, dude. I know. What, how down must that guy have been? It's like, my me- my job is to go into the battlefield and say that you're not coming. Like, have how- you seen barbed wire? <laughs> it's true. That would have been great. He's like, all right, so he's not coming, so can I get in there with you? <laughs> is there is there room for one? Can I take a seat? <laughs> I, kind, I honestly, with the way this movie is, I legitimately thought he was going to get shot right after he gave the news to her that he wasn't coming. <laughs> His blood was just going to splatter over her face and Charlie's. Yeah, because that's when they were going to have to be like, all right, we got to go, 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 go. Okay, no, uh, what I thought was going to happen is that because they were waiting for him, they were going to get attacked and that's how Charlie was going to lose his uh, Yeah, we never really learned how he, he went blind. Well, he tells a story, but I, you can't tell if he's being serious or not, where he's like... Hey, you want to know how I got these scars type thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Willis, what's with the monkey suit? You know how uniforms impress the congressional. Delegation arrived this morning. Look lively, Barb. They could be here any minute. Excuse me, Bob. All right, back to our friends at Wikipedia. Axel tries to help Cora get to Canada. They find a contraband pair of contact lenses that would allow Cora to evade retinal scan identification at the Steel Harbor Airport. The lenses pass through the hands of several low lives before ending up in Barb's nightclub. So the casually who, calling uh Clint Howard a low life. I, I mean he looks wonderfully greasy in this movie. I fucking love it. Yeah, so the guy who skipped bail, um so the guy who skipped on his bond with Clint Howard that's 
uh, Barb went and hunted and turned over to him. He wasn't being completely truthful. This guy had some extremely valuable contraband. And he, sh- Clint Howard shows back up at the nightclub and he's like, hey, man, I got this shit. I need your help hiding it. And, you know, I'll pay you all this money, yada, yada, yada. And again, Barb has no allegiance to anybody. So she just kind of tells him to fuck off. And Clint ends up hiding it in the kitchen of the bar. And that's we get this revealing shot of Charlie. And like I said, he he knows things that others don't. And you know, all his other senses are heightened. So he's able to snag these. Uh, the idea of the illegal contact lenses that change your retinas. I, I can't imagine how valuable those would be. Like what's a... What would that be tantamount to now? Like, what's an extremely rare, you know, paper in Waterworld? Do we have anything like that? I guess some shoes. The new so, iPhone. Like when the, they when they when they roll out that update where uh, it would do facial recognition even if you had your mask on, that was that was amazing. That was groundbreaking. If you go back to two thousand uh, in America at the launch, the PlayStation Two was like you know extreme currency. <laughs> Clean Howard. I, well, I guess PlayStation 5. Maybe not yeah, now, but, but last year. For a while, yeah. And I know some stores, you still can't just walk in and buy a PS5. But Or a Switch, like during the, the, <laughs> the hardcore Clint, lockdown. Like Clint, Clint Howard, Howard just, just in his office with PS5s and Switches <laughs> like stacked behind him. What do you need, baby? <laughs> well, no, Clint Howard has the one working Switch in all of, uh, what's it called? New Haven, New Steel Haven, whatever that city is. Steel yeah. Harbor. Still harbor, and uh, yeah, he he hides it in barbed wire's kitchen. <laughs> Fucking uh, Udo Kier, is that Cuphead? He has Cuphead. <laughs> <laughs> Barb spends the night drinking her problems away. There's actually a fantastic line from this. Charlie comes in. Oh, and... I know, I know. Wait, wait, wait. I have it. I have it. Okay. So, well, first of all, Barb has been drinking all night after seeing Axel again. And just, you know, she's having a rough go of things right now. Uh, This is without question her hottest look in the movie, though, because she's got her hair tied back, but it's still kind of messy. And, you know, she's wearing black leather throughout the entire thing. She does not look bad at any point in this movie. But this, like, this look that she has right here with that bottle of fucking scotch or whiskey or whatever is in her hand, I was just like, this is working for me. Let's keep this going here. (laughs) But, um... Yeah, I, Julio, I think we're on the same page here. Charlie drops some incredible dialogue on her. Yes, I had to write it down. And I was like, this is the, the best screenplay, best original screenplay. No, it would be adapted because it's based on a comic book. Best adapted screenplay line or bit. And it would be when he says, uh, drink when you want to remember. Don't drink when you want to forget. And she has that look of like shame on her face as he just kind of, you know, walks off into the sunset behind her. The shame spreads throughout the audience because, again, much like at the opening, you're like, oh, well, here I was kind of underestimating this movie. <laughs> and it hits you with, with that grain of wisdom. Uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Um, so here by now, like they've also established the, the, I guess the, the other Casablanca uh, reference or what have you, uh, Echo, which is that. Yeah, uh, her her ex boyfriend came back and he's married. <laughs> That's right, because in Casablanca, yeah. Ilsa comes back. She's married to Laszlo, and Rake is like, "Son of a bitch! Last time I saw you, you were single, and you said you loved me." And here he comes back, and he's like, "Yeah, we got married." It's, and then she says, "It started." She didn't say it started as a joke, but she's just, she's like, "It wasn't serious at first. It was just for the visa." 
and and then she kind of trails off and doesn't say anything else. So the assumption is that they're in a serious relationship, right? Like it was a marriage that started as a sham, but now it's it's a serious marriage. But, but as soon as Django and Barbara alone, they just start sucking yep. face. Exactly. <laughs> so I like the the fluidity of the, these relationships. And yeah, not to mention that he just unannounced walks in on her taking a bath and she's, I mean, for the entire exposition scene, she's nude. She has a towel around her, but she's just, it's a, it's a, I don't understand this crazy future of 2017, I guess. I don't understand how relationships work. <laughs> that's, it's, it's an America that's been damaged so much that it finally got rid of uh, its prudeness. Like it, <laughs> everything else went to hell, but at least we got a little more uh, loosey-goosey when it came to sex. No, uh, no, no more monogamous relationships at all. I mean, it's like that'll be that's still like the default. But if you if you're led astray by a by a Pamela Anderson Lee, good call. Nude it, in the bathtub. Monogamy exists outside of Steel Harbor, but in Steel Harbor, just <laughs> we fuck. Every day could be your last. So. Why not? So get to it. Uh, this is, again, where the, the Batman thing, it's not a bit, Alex, because literally like the thing that I thought was like, have we ever seen Bruce Wayne taking a bubble bath in just like as part of the story where it moved the narrative forward? I think, no, or is that he's always so dour. And, and then that made me think even going further, I was like, have we ever seen like a superhero, like a male superhero like, be where a movie so playful about his sexuality right and here it doesn't feel out of place again i don't feel like it's it's exploitative because it's kind of like part of the it's part of the fun right it's not uh the idea behind the scene is that she is she has no problem with kind of being naked in front of this guy it's 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 kind of like the power that she has right and yeah and then she she struts her stuff and then she kisses him as soon as they get in the elevator and it all makes sense you know and i it kind of made me realize how, uh, and I've heard this argument before, but I, I guess I'd never felt it until today, <laughs> that how sexless uh, superhero movies are uh, today, right? Uh, I know that they're not rated R, but in, in a way, you've kind of removed this very vital aspect of humanity. And uh, you know, for most people, sex is a big deal, and, and sexuality is a big deal, and that's generally missing from these movies, this type of uh, comic book adaptations and all that stuff. I don't know if the barbed wire comic is as sexually driven as the movie, but it was cool to see. It was refreshing because you don't see that very often. Or when you see it, you see it done in very poor taste. But here, like I said, it's, it's kind of empowering just to see her not give a fuck that she's, she's taking a bath and he walks in on her and she's like, all right, well, getting up, putting my robe, I'm not ashamed of what I got. <laughs> And and like I said, it works at keeping her in power. It's I, I found it pretty cool. And again, ultimately, I came back to yeah, Batman would never do this for shame. <laughs> we finally learn why Cora D is so valuable. As she explains, there's like a more dangerous version of HIV called Red Ribbon that is going to be used for like population control. And she figured this out, and that's why she defected out of the military branch that she was in. And she has the vaccine for it, and she needs to get to Canada, get get out of America, get to the right places, warn people, and uh, basically be where she's going to be safe and in a place to help. She is Pfizer. I suppose so, yeah. (laughs) Because this is in her blood, right? That makes sense, yeah. Now, while we've learned this, (laughs) because Pamela Anderson's in a towel when the 
congressional show back up. They took the memory of a, a henchman, a bodyguard that had recently died at Clint Howard's bail bonds uh, business, and he had a memory of barbed wire, so they know she knows more than she's let on with them. So they come in, absolutely destroy her bar, just rip it to shreds because she's not giving them anything. Pretty heartbreaking to see Udo Kier. He like puts his hands by his head at one point, like, oh, God. <laughs> yes. He knows he's going to have to clean up after them. They let Cora D go because they obviously don't recognize her and their retina scanner's not working. Because it's not we working see, because Charlie uh, yeah, jammed it. I thought it was pretty cool. So with all this information, and Pamela Anderson now has the contact lenses. She said, this is our payday. We can get to Europe with this. She goes, and I mentioned uh, the arms dealer slash crime kingpin, Big Fatso. He's kind of the what would be uh, an an equal or like a a parallel to the big fatso character in something else we've done. Oh, that we've done. Uh, I don't know because I instantly he's like like Jabba the Hutt and Kingpin all together. There you go. If okay. they ate chicken, you cannot ignore the chicken leg in his hand. I think it's turkey, but okay, I'll take it. <laughs> But yeah, he's like a, a black market arms dealer. He has his gang. He He's the guy he's in with the police and he can get you what you need. And she goes to strike a deal with him that, yeah, I'll give you these. I need a, a million dollars Canadian and I need an escort to the airport to ensure that I'm going to get out of here. And they make a deal to be $750,000 Canadian cash and you got yourself a deal. Is this, uh, is this character, is this depiction problematic, Alex? Or is this just something delightful that we've lost in these woke years of ours? Well, well, well. It isn't Barb the Butson. A gesture. Woo! Donuts. Yeah, I'm going to guess having zero knowledge of the source material that this might be an homage to something in the comic because it felt like everything else in the movie seemed grounded in some sense of like mainstream audiences. Here you go. And then this comes along and it's like, what the fuck? Uh, <laughs> like, you know, every time this the a comic book adaptation was attempted up until like Spider-Man, that was one of the criticisms that there's things in here from the comic or the source material that regular audiences don't understand. Now, Again, I'm not going to pretend like I know shit about the barbed wire comic. I know stuff about Dark Horse comics, which we'll talk about in the second half. But if this was an original creation, then yes, I think might need to have a word with uh, <laughs> Chuck Ferrer and Eileen uh, Chaikin about their, their portrayal here of this big fatso character. Okay, but don't we celebrate similar depictions of you know big bad people in a movie like fury road like okay not not we we don't but society <laughs> society uh yeah i i suppose so like the only difference is like i mentioned the, the chicken slash turkey well and he eats donuts too and i think he's eating something else oh, in the last right, scene yeah. so i i see where you're going but I, I don't think that's the issue i think it's more of just like what was it what was the end goal here Alex, this uh, before I forget, this has one of the most memorable images. This sequence has ends with or is punctuated with one of the most memorable images in the movie, which is Clint Howard, a dead Clint Howard, stuck in a mini fridge with an apple in his mouth. It was a, a sad yet dignified end for Clint Howard. <laughs> is that the the Criterion cover? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Charlie gets set up. 
as you know, as we mentioned, he's got an in with the resistance and he goes to meet with Spike, the the woman of the bunch that he works most closely with, and she's been killed by Prizer and his gang of scum. And sadly, this leads to Charlie dying as well as he's being tortured for more information and just absolutely refuses to give any of it up. He goes out like like a champ. He, oh, yeah. he never breaks. He keeps fucking with uh Pfizer slash Prizer and uh, he and when he's getting tortured, he's screaming like it really hurts. It's uh, a very like convincing scene. No bullshit. Uh, so Charlie's dead. Barb and the gang, Axel and Cora D, go to meet up with Big Fatso to get their ticket out of town. He offers them a debit card. He's like, I can't get cash. What are you crazy? And it's really funny because she asks for the cash and someone has a a briefcase like in every movie you've ever seen you know they open it and there's cash in it but he opens it there's just a debit card taped inside and it says the dollar amount on it i don't know why that tickled me so much but i enjoyed that it's like those uh it's like those gift cards that you buy at target or walmart the, the prepaid ones you know like yeah, prepaid yeah. credit cards it, the yeah, prepaid pieces yeah a big 750 on the front <laughs> So Big Fatso, as we mentioned, I don't know why she trusted him to begin with. He's a fucking arms dealer and criminal. He's he's kingpin. And he sold him out to the cops. When the cops show up, the resistance has been wiped out. Charlie's dead. There's really no hope. But in the end, Xander Berkeley pulls through. As he said, he'll be the one to arrest Barb and the gang. And he mimes doing so, but actually hands her a grenade. Quite a risky move. <laughs> She she pulls the pin on it, throws it up. It lands soundly in the lap of Big Fatso. He's blown to the high heavens as everyone kind of scrambles while Axel, Cora D, Willis, and Barb are able to stage a getaway. Then we have this really fucking awesome car chase. I can't overstate, Alex, how happy I was to see Sandra Berkeley join the good guys. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You know, because he was kind of, he was like barbed wire, kind of playing both sides right he's working with the proud boys but he's also giving her advice and being reluctant uh, whenever something bad's gonna happen and now here he finally crosses the line and he then he's in the getaway car with them that's that was pretty exciting and it's not for nothing it's a good chase scene and there's the you know they do they introduce a gun in the first act but all in the time of like three minutes where she said if we, there's an emergency pull that yellow <laughs> lever and then she heads out the back of the this van they're in or um truck rather and a bike and shoots down some cars coming their way and eventually they do pull the lever and it shoots like fucking rockets out of the truck it's fantastic they get to the pier there's a big showdown it eventually all leads to barb and prizer way suspended in the air as they he ran a forklift into her bike Django fett took a crane picked them up suspended them <laughs> way in the air uh, a fight commences and eventually culminates in him for some reason saying it reminds me of my favorite song I've got you babe and she says don't call me babe and let's go of the line and he falls to a very fiery and intense death while she is reeled back into safety uh, one one final Batman comparison I promise but uh, through this entire climatic confrontation he's just laughing like a madman in a way that he hasn't through the entire movie and the movie, he was scary, and he was always serious. But here, it's almost like something snaps, and and he just—it's uh, like he finally got the joke, <laughs> and, and he is just having a grand old time having this climatic fight with with barbed wire. And 
I, I thought it was pretty cool. I think that that's the moment where he became a memorable villain for me. He shed all the other associations that made with him throughout the movie, and and now he was just his own guy. When I think of the bad guy in Barbed Wire, I'm gonna think of uh, this actor just laughing like a maniac as he repeatedly uh, rams barbed wire against other cars uh, using a bulldozer. It's uh, delightful. I've never seen anything like that in any movie before. Go to the airport. We learn that she does have the contact lenses. She had them on her eyes. Why they didn't think to check there is why they lost, and they're all dead now. Well, there was a lot going on. <laughs> there was a grenade involved. <laughs> she takes them out, gives them to Cora D. She puts them in. Probably not the most sanitary thing in the world, but man, <laughs> desperate times call for desperate measures. Cora D and Axel, Django Fett, get on that plane. They leave. He does make one last look back at barbed wire, and you know they know they're never going to see each other again, but at least they got the closure on the situation. The movie ends in the rain with Willis Xander Berkeley talking to barbed wire. He's smoking a cigarette and asks what she's going to do now, and she says that she hears Paris is great this time of year because in all the fracas, she got away with that debit card with $750,000 on it. And, and he, he says, I think I'm in love. To which she says, get in line. And then a few <laughs> gunshots go off and it's the end of the movie. Please tell me that you appreciate the restraint at neither of them saying this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Oh, absolutely. Or here's looking at you. Yep. Yeah, it's it's just it's just the right level of of homage of reference, right? It's like, oh, it's raining, and they're at the airport, and there's there's a plane in the background, and they're you know this bar owner or former bar owner, and uh, and this sort of corrupt cop. They've just kind of come out the other side, and now they're they're tied forever. <laughs> they're with the revolution. This was the moment, Alex, where I really went like, oh, Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> it took you that long yeah i was like oh it's not batman at all oh okay i see like up till then i thought that all the like the the, the connections to casablanca were kind of coincidental right because you can make a movie about a bar owner and you know it being neutral whatever without it being specifically casablanca but then once it got to that final shot I'm like okay there's no this was extremely intentional and i felt like a dumbass <laughs> And then the credits roll, and some Tommy Lee song plays, and I am a better man for having lived the previous 90 minutes of my life. <laughs> so is this uh, a Tommy Lee classic, a Tommy Lee original? Welcome to Planet Boom, a.k.a. This Booms for You, written by Tommy Lee. I mean, historically speaking, Nikki Six did a lot of the writing for Motley Crue, and also historically speaking, when Tommy Lee's been left on his own, on his lonesome to do writing and, you know, independent projects. I mean, you don't really have to look much further than the infamous Methods of Mayhem from 1999. Uh, so the fact that he wrote this song for his wife's movie is admirable. That doesn't mean that it's a good track at all. <laughs> we appreciate the effort. And then we're out of here in 98 minutes. Perfect length. Teetered right on going too long, but they wrapped it all up in a hilarious fashion because it's fucking Casablanca, but with Pamela Anderson <laughs> and guns. Perfect length, like Michael Fassbender's penis. And we bring it full circle. Yeah. All right. Let's go to real talk, Alex. Let's do it.